Uh, Leo Alstrom is one of our worship leaders here at Christ Community Church, and he not only leads worship, he writes songs. In fact, some of the, uh, the songs that we sing at our weekend services have been composed by Leo. The one that we sang at the outset of today's service, This Is Our God, This Is Our God, that's a Leo Alstrom song. Some of you weren't here to sing it, and I'd like to encourage you to get here on time next time. Okay? In, in fact, this isn't in my notes, but let me just say, worship is as important a part of our service as the teaching of God's Word. So if you're late on occasion, everybody is, right? But if you're late chronically, I would encourage you to aim at getting here a few minutes early so you don't miss the worship, which is every bit as important as anything else that goes on in this service. Now, that's an aside. Back to the message. Leo, Leo writes these really great worship songs, and I was telling him just a week or so ago, what I like about your worship songs, Leo, is they're so singable. I mean, a person doesn't even have to be musical to catch on to your lyrics and your melody and so on. You're just, you're a simple guy. And Leo looked at me, and he smiled, and he said, well, that's what you get with a third grade education. And, uh, you know, I, I knew he was kidding, because I know that Leo made it through, like, fifth grade, you know, so... Uh, but seriously, while I don't know Leo's IQ, his intelligence quotient, I do know he's got an extremely high MQ, musical quotient, that allows him to write these singable songs. And most of us know people like Leo who are gifted, who have natural talents in one area or, or another, and it doesn't depend on formal schooling, it doesn't depend on book learning. You know, for, for example, I know a guy named Bob who can fix anything. He's fixed all sorts of stuff at my house. He's fixed stuff around the church. I've told him on more than one occasion, Bob, you're, you're a fix-it genius. So Bob's got a high FQ, fix-it quotient. Okay. Some of us know natural athletes. They're, they're not only good at the sport that they played in high school and college. Truth is they could pick up any sport tomorrow and be playing it like you know those of us who've played for years and years and years. They have a high SQ, sports quotient. Or let me give you another example. Last weekend, uh, I was at a college reunion, and I ran into an old buddy of mine who is a born salesman. Okay, th this is one of those guys who could sell ice cubes to Eskimos. He's got a high BQ, baloney quotient. <laughs> you know, I was, we're, we're talking for five minutes, and he was already schmoozing me about something. Uh, oh, it's just like old Bill there. Yeah, so today what we're going to look at is RQ. Our relational quotient. This is a person who's good with people. You know, a person who can mend broken relationships, a person who's wise enough to build into relationships. And we're going to be looking at James chapter 3. So if you brought a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn to James 3. We're in the middle of a 12-week series called Faith That Makes a Difference. And again, today we're talking about RQ, relational quotient. The good news about RQ is that this is not just a natural ability. Okay, this, like the other things I talked about a moment ago, this is not something that you're born with or you weren't, that you got or you don't. This is actually a spiritual ability. It's something that God gives you. It's something that God could give anyone in the auditoriums of our four campuses today. It comes from wisdom. It's a byproduct of what the Bible calls wisdom. RQ comes from wisdom. And so today we're gonna look at James 3, what James has to say about what wisdom looks like and how we get wisdom. So, if you've taken your outline out, let me give you the first point. And I've sort of already been making this point. Wisdom is relational. Okay, wisdom is relational. Write that down 
in your outline. And let me read the first verse of today's text to you, verse 13 of James chapter 3. James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Wisdom. Now, James begins with a question. Who is wise and understanding among you? I've told you before that James is an in-your-face kind of guy. Okay, James does not hesitate to say hard things to people, but he's also very winsome in the way he does it. He's very diplomatic. Uh, You've probably heard the expression before, velvet-covered brick. James was a velvet-covered brick, okay? He could, he could be a brick, but he could, you know, coat what he said in a, in a, a very winsome way. One, one of the evidences of this diplomacy is his asking of questions. Throughout the epistle, he just, you know, he asks disarming questions, questions that get around people's defenses, questions that invite people to think with him. You know, oftentimes, if you're trying to make a point, asking a good question is much better than telling somebody something, Right? See, if you're a parent, write that down, okay? Asking your kids questions sometimes is a better way to make your point than telling them something. So James begins with a question. By the way, if I can ask you a question, who did James learn how to ask good questions from? Who was always asking great questions? Jesus. And, and what's the relationship between these two guys, you re- recall? Yeah, they're stepbrothers, half-brothers, however you say it. And so they'd grown up together, and James had witnessed Jesus' teaching, and Jesus had a way of provoking thinking by asking good questions. So James does the same thing. He begins by saying, who is wise and understanding among you? Two words in that question I want to park on for a moment, wise and understanding. Let me give you definitions. Okay, this is a Bible scholar. These definitions come, come from a Bible scholar. Wise is having skill in deciding practical issues of conduct. Understanding, having the knowledge of an expert as applied to practical situations. Now, look at those two definitions for a moment. Do you notice a significant word that pops up in both those definitions? If you see it, call it out. What is it? The word practical. You see, if you're wise... If you're understanding, according to the Bible, it means you know the right thing to do in everyday situations. Practically speaking, you know the right thing to do, and you do it. Go go back to verse 13 that I read a moment ago. James says that wise and understanding people show it by their good life. Okay, this is practical. By deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Deeds done. It's the doing of the right thing. So being wise and understanding, don't miss this, being wise and understanding is very different from being smart. See, being smart has to do with having a head full of facts, knowledge, data, information. Okay, a smart person may may know a lot about, you know, the history of the United States. A a smart person, sports-wise, might know the batting averages of the Cubs starting lineup. A smart person may know what what paint color works best in this living room to match the furniture, or what stocks to invest in, or what the latest updates on the, the friend's Facebook pages are. That's smartness. I'll bet everybody in the auditoriums at our four campuses, I'll bet everybody is smart about something. But James wants to know, are you wise in understanding? That's a different matter. Do you know the right thing to do in everyday situations, and do you do it? specifically when it comes to relationships. 
Now, why did I add when it comes to relationships? Uh, James doesn't say anything about relationships in verse 13, does he? I mean, this opening question, who is wise and understanding among you? Nothing there about relationships. But if you look at the second half of the verse, James starts moving in the direction of some relational teaching with the use of a very relational word. What's the relational word in the second half of verse 13? Call it out if you see it. Say it again. Humility. Humility is a relational word. Now, humility was not a very popular concept in the secular culture of James' day. In, in, in Greek culture, humility was a negative characteristic. I mean, humility described people who lacked confidence. You know, people who never accomplished anything of great significance. People who allowed others to treat them like doormats. But then Christianity came along and redefined the word. Christianity redefined humility on the basis of the character of Jesus Christ, who exhibited great humility. And probably the clearest definition of humility in the Bible comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul, Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, in humility, now he's going to define it, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. What is humility? Humility is others-centeredness. Humility is others-centeredness as opposed to being me-centered. Humility is taking a sincere interest in the other people that we encounter every day. It's putting a high value on being relational. And some of us are saying, well, you know, I got my friends. I'm, I'm not speaking of just your relationship with your friends or family members. A, a relational person is working at building relationships with other people. A relational person is, is building relationships across the board with everyone they meet. And so wisdom is demonstrated by humility, and humility is relational. Humility is relational. You get it? Good. Let me give you an illustration of what this looks like. Have you ever seen the movie In Good Company? It's one of, one of my uh, favorite Dennis Quaid movies. He plays the role of 51-year-old Dan, who is the, uh, the advertising manager at a sports magazine. And the sports magazine is taken over by a larger corporation, and they demote Dan, and they put in his place Carter, a 26-year-old hotshot who's just graduated from business school. And this guy, you know, he knows all the latest tech. He uses big words like synergy, which everybody at the sports magazine, they're like scratching their heads. What the heck is synergy? All right, and you, you can kind of see where this is going. Uh, Dan, 51, is now working for Carter, 26 years old. Well, the sports magazine begins to lose business, and, and they're going to go out of business, advertising business they're losing. They're going to go out of business unless they can uh, recoup a few customers who've moved on, a few clients. And so uh, Carter is out there trying every whiz-bang idea in the book to generate new revenue. Nothing works. And finally, Dan says, hey, come with me. And they go to see the CEO of one of the companies that's just withdrawn its advertising. And so Carter's going to be schooled by what Dan does. And to his surprise, Dan says absolutely nothing about advertising in his magazine. He just starts asking the guy, guy questions about his family. How are your kids, you know? And they start doing this good old boy conversation, and they talk for several minutes. At the end of it, the CEO looks at Dan and says, hey, Dan, I've been thinking about renewing my business with your magazine. And that's it. Now, I love this movie, not only because 
a middle-aged guy triumphs over a kid half his age, <laughs> which is very gratifying. But, but I love because what it teaches, what it teaches about our cue, relational quotient. See, we live in a world that values talent, that values technology, hipness, the mastery of information, financial success. We live in a world that values smart. But God's word calls us to be wise and understanding, and that's different from smart. True wisdom is relational. Say that with me. True wisdom is relational. Number two, wisdom rejects relational busters. Now, let me introduce you to a couple of relational busters. They'll sink relationships every time. And you'll find them in verses 14 to 16. As I read these verses, I want you to look for the two relational busters, and I'll give you a hint. They pop up together, and the couplet appears two times. Okay, verse 14. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. Okay, all four campuses, what are the two relational busters in these verses? Envy and selfish ambition. Let's define the two terms. We'll begin with envy. There are actually two sides to envy. Okay, envy on, on one side is wanting what others have. We're all familiar with that definition. Okay, somebody's got good looks and you wish you had their good looks or you wish you had their car. You wish you, you had their obedient children or their uh, college scholarship or, you know, whatever. Envy is wanting what others have. But there's a flip side to envy that some of us are less familiar with. Envy is also wanting others not to have what they have. Envy is wanting others not to have what they have. Let me show you what this looks like. Okay, your friend gets an A on the chemistry test. Now you got a B plus, and the fact of the matter is you're happy with a B plus. B plus is great for you. But you wish that they had not gotten an A. Even though you don't want their A, you wish they had not gotten an A. See, this is twisted, isn't it? But we all do it. Somebody comes back from vacation at work, and they got a smartphone full of a hundred pictures of their cruise. Now, now, you don't like cruises. You wouldn't choose to go on a cruise yourself. However, at the same time, you wish that they had not spent seven days, six nights cruising the Caribbean on one of Carnival's biggest boats. And if you have to look at one more picture of dolphins or a large dinner buffet, you know, you're, you're going to puke. So, envy. These are the two sides of it. Wanting what others have or wanting them not to have it. That's a relational buster. Second relational buster that James mentions is selfish ambition. Uh, interestingly, this phrase in the original Greek, uh, this phrase pops up throughout ancient literature, selfish ambition. One of the oldest references to selfish ambition in literature comes from the pen of Aristotle, the 4th century B.C. philosopher. And, and he puts it in the context of a politician who wants to advance his party at any cost. You know, that's the, the definition, the picture of selfish ambition that Aristotle paints. Some things don't change, right? 
But, but that picture gives you a feel for what selfish ambition is like. It's a person who's so focused on what they want, whether that's in politics or in school, whether that's in business or sports or the attaining of possessions, you, you name it, they're so focused. They don't see anybody else unless someone dares to get in their way. <laughs> the Apostle Paul uses the expression selfish ambition in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 20, 12, verse 20, and he puts it on a list. Here are the other items on the list along with selfish ambition. Discord, arrogance, gossip, slander, and anger. That's the company that selfish ambition keeps. So envy, selfish ambition, these are relational Busters. Now, let me give you a biblical illustration, a guy who was known for envy and selfish ambition, so you could see what it looks like. His name was Jacob, an Old Testament character. You could read his story in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Uh, Jacob was the grandson of the patriarch Abraham, the son of Isaac. He was a twin, and when he and his brother Esau were still in their mother's womb, they were constantly duking it out with each other during her pregnancy. You know, I, I got a kick as I reviewed the story. I got a kick. Um, that was a bad pun. I, I did not intend that. But I, I, I you know, was amused by the story as I read it again in Genesis this week because I have two pregnant daughters, and I've been watching their bellies move you know, lately. So, but in this case, there were two boys in Rebecca's womb, and they were constantly jostling, so much so that on one occasion she asked God, like, what is going on in there? And God said, this is the beginning of a bitter rivalry. So when they finally come out on the day of birth, Esau comes out first. He's the firstborn. But ja get this, Jacob is hanging on to Esau's foot as they come out. And so Isaac and Rebekah name him Jacob. The name means, in Hebrew, means grasper. So you moms and dads who've named your, your boy Jacob because it's a cool name. And it's now the most popular baby boy's name. I know that too because of having two pregnant daughters. You, you just named your kid Grasper. How about that? Okay, but don't feel bad because James, my name, is the English version of Jacob. So I'm a grasper too. So the grasper comes out of the womb and he realizes early on in life that his brother Esau is really his dad's favorite. And that again is because Esau is the firstborn. Which, which means that Esau is first in line for the family birthright, the family inheritance, as well as the father's blessing. And so Jacob is filled with envy and selfish ambition. He wants what Esau has. Well, they grow up, and in young adulthood, uh, Esau's kind of a man's man. He becomes a hunter. He comes in from hunting one day. He's famished, and Jacob's kind of a stay-around-the-house kid, and he's cooking a stew in his mom's crock pot, and it smells delicious. And Esau says, give me some of that stew, and Jacob very shrewdly says, give me your birthright. And evidently, Esau is so hungry, he does something really stupid. He says, oh, whatever. And he gives Jacob his birthright in exchange for a bowl of stew. Jacob now has half of what he wants. But he is still ruled by envy and selfish ambition. He doesn't have the father's blessing yet. That still goes to Esau. So one day, Isaac's an old man. Now he's nearly blind nearly blind, so Jacob dresses up like Esau, goes into his father, pretends to be Esau before his father, asks for his dad's blessing, and Isaac gives it to him, thinking that he's talking to Esau. And this is an irrevocable blessing. 
Now, this is as much of the story as I, I want to tell you. I'm make, making a point here. The, the point is that Jacob was ruled by envy and selfish ambition, and it made a total ruin of his relationships. His relationships were a disaster, beginning with Esau. Esau hated Jacob for having swindled him out of his birthright and the father's blessing. How many of you know it's not a good thing to be hated by a guy who's a skilled hunter? Okay, a guy who, who's good with weapons. And so Jacob, for many years, lives, lives in mortal fear of his brother Esau, wondering when Esau is going to settle the score. He lives in fear every day of his life. They never communicate, these two brothers, until the end of life. Not only that, Jacob, in a far-off land, he gets himself two wives, and they're constantly contentious because what goes around comes around. Selfish ambition, envy, ruled his household. He worked for his father-in-law, Laban, and they would periodically cheat each other from a business standpoint. Envy, selfish, and it ruined every relationship in Jacob's life. It ruined his relationship with God. I mean, you got to understand that if you're trying to hold the reins of your own life and push yourself ahead, then you're not trusting a sovereign God with the details and the outcome of your life, right? And if you're filled with envy, you always want more, then you're not being very grateful to this God who's given you everything. So envy and selfish ambition are relational busters. Now, you might not agree with James on this point. After everything I've said here today, you might still think that your relentless drive to get ahead is a good thing. You consider yourself to be a person with savvy. I mean, you are worldly wise. And you know what? James would agree with you in part on the worldly part of things. Go back to the text I read to you, verse 15. James says such wisdom, okay, wisdom motivated by envy and selfish ambition, that is, such wisdom does not come down from heaven but is earthly. You're right. If you say you're worldly wise, you're right. But, but this is not a good term. It just means you haven't gotten your wisdom from God. It's not come from heaven. It's not only earthbound, but look at the next two words that James uses to describe it. It's also unspiritual and demonic. And some of us are saying at this point, okay, now James is way over the top. I mean, every one of us struggles to some extent with envy and selfish ambition. And James says, if you do, this is demonic? Come on, James. Lighten up a little bit. But see, James has his Bible history correct. James knows that before the beginning of time, Satan was one of the top-ranking angels in heaven. But that wasn't good enough for Satan. He wanted God's job. And so he led a rebellion, he led a coup, which God quickly squashed and tossed Satan out of heaven. So James is, James is quite correct when he says, you know, envy, selfish ambition, let me tell you where it comes from. It's demonic. Envy and selfish ambition. Friends, they're not to be taken lightly. When we see them in our lives, as I prayed earlier, God's word is a mirror. When you look in the mirror of God's word and he exposes envy and selfish ambition, it's not something to be taken lightly. It's something to be banished. These are relational busters. You need the help of God's spirit. This is why you need to surrender to Christ because you're not going to beat envy and selfish ambition on your own. Not until the spirit of God comes to live on the inside will these two traits begin to be banished. Not until God's spirit opens up his word and you've got the resource of God's word in addition to his spirit 
Will you see the life change you'd like to see? So these are the relational busters. Point number three, wisdom pursues relational builders. This is the flip side of the coin. Go back to the text. Let me read verses 17 and 18. Relational builders. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, there are seven relational builders in these two verses, and I'd like to explain the meaning of each to you, but here's what I want you to do as I'm giving you the meanings of each of these words. I want you to pick three from this list of seven that you need the most work on. See, all of us need all seven of these. But the fact of the matter is we would be overwhelmed if we tried to remember all seven when we leave here today. So I'm going to ask you, as I go through the list, you identify your top three. Which three do you most need God to work into your life? In fact, I'm going to challenge you before you leave the auditorium of each of our campuses that you turn to somebody, maybe a friend that you came with or a family member you came with or the person sitting next to you who you haven't met yet, and you say, okay, these are my three. Now, when they tell you they're three, no fair looking at them and saying, yeah, it's about time. Yeah, so I've seen that for years. All right, so don't do that to your spouse or your friend who's willing to be honest with you. But I, I want you to lock on to the, the top three that with God's help you're going to work on. You're going to raise your RQ by working on these three traits. So here are the seven. The first is pure. You see that at the beginning of the list in verse 17? Now, I've got to admit to you, as I was uh, ruminating on this list, I thought to myself, why pure? Okay, these are relational builders. If you look at the other six items on the list, they all have to do with relationships. But, but pure, you know, pure sounds so personal, not interpersonal. Why, why does James include pure on the list of relational builders? Why does he put it at the top of the list? Here's why I think James puts pure at the top of the list. Okay? When, when we dabble in impure behavior, okay, when we dabble in morally impure behavior, such as, okay, such as viewing pornography on the internet or on your smartphone, or for guys, ogling, ogling the, the pretty girl who goes by in the tight jeans, or sleeping with your boyfriend or fantasizing about sleeping with your boyfriend, you, whatever the immoral behavior is, when we dabble in impure behavior, what we're doing is we're looking at people as objects. We're not looking at them as people who've been made in the image of God. We're not looking at what's on the inside, are we? We're not looking at people from a relational standpoint. You following me? And, and in fact, what we're, we're doing is, is looking at people from the perspective of their ability to fulfill our sexual desires. This goes back to the relational buster of selfish ambition. It's what I want. It's what I'm interested in. This is why pure is a relational builder and impure is a relational buster. Now, while I'm talking about pure... Just a footnote to this point. I want to say a word about modesty. Uh, for some reason, this has been on my heart for uh, several weeks, and I've run into uh, a number of conversations where the subject has come up. So let me say a word about it, because it's a byproduct of pure. Okay, And I'm going to speak 
from the only perspective I can speak from, I'm going to speak as a guy who's making an appeal to ladies, all right? And this is the same perspective, by the way, that the Apostle Paul wrote from in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, when Paul wrote these words. He said, I want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. Propriety means respectable, okay, respectableness. So, ladies, here's my word to you. When you dress modestly, what you help us guys to see is who you are on the inside. That's what we see. Okay, we see your love for God. We see your empathy for other people. We see your quirky sense of humor. We see your delightful personality. We see your insightfulness. That's what we see when you dress modestly. When you dress immodestly, what we see are your exposed body parts. What, what we see, what a guy's eyes are drawn to are those parts of your body that are in super tight clothing, okay? Now, I know some, some of you ladies are thinking, Pastor Jim, you're talking like a very conservative middle-aged dad. Right. Let me tell you about a conversation I had this past week, though, with a, a, a very hip 20-something female. She said to me, Pastor Jim, I was on Facebook this week, and I was looking at pictures of some of my high school friends, the dresses they wore to prom this year, and I couldn't believe the exposed flesh. She said it was really kind of appalling. Ladies, we want to look at what's on the inside. With God's help, if you're a follower of Jesus, draw attention to who he's made you to be. This is why pure, this is why modesty is a relational builder. And impure and immodesty just destroys relationship. You get it? Good. Just a footnote. Yeah, some of you really want to clap. Like it's about time you said something about that, Jim. Just a footnote to dads. Because I'm the, you don't know what I'm going to say to dads. <laughs> Because I raised two daughters who are now young adults, okay, in their growing up years, especially when they were high school students, I was the modesty sheriff of the house. And I did not choose that job. I was voted into office by my wife. <laughs> and here's my pitch. Dads, don't make your wife play this role. That's a really hard role for her to play. You know, have the courage. Man up, dads. There are occasions when you need to look at your daughter and say, sweetheart, I love you, but you're not going out of the house like that. Because I'd be a guy, too. And I know how guys are wired, and I know what they're looking at, and that outfit's not helpful, okay? So dads, play the role, all right? Uh, by the way, just a humorous uh, side note to this whole thing. Uh, my daughter sent me by email last night. My daughter, Rachel, who's pregnant, flew out to Portland, where my other daughter, Emily, is pregnant. And they sent us a picture email yesterday of their two bare bellies next to each other. And I said, oh, you guys, don't post that on Facebook. I'm talking about modesty this weekend. <laughs> and a Emily writes back, and she says, chill, Dad. It's not like we're going to put this on Facebook. So I hope you'll never see that picture. But... Uh, <laughs> Second, relational builder, middle of verse 17, peace-loving. Please note that James mentions this relational builder a second time. So this must be a really important one in verse 18. The closing verse of the chapter, he commends people who are peacemakers. Are you a peacemaker? Are you the kind of person who, when you see a conflict between individuals, you do your best to bring them together? Or are you the kind of person who makes the conflict even worse by throwing in a sarcastic or a critical or a gossipy sort of remark? Every one of us carries around through life two buckets, 
Okay, I want you to visualize this. You carry two buckets, a bucket of water and a bucket of kerosene. And when you come across a spark in a conversation, you, you have the option of tipping a little bit of water on the spark and putting it out. Or you could dump some kerosene on it and make a blazing inferno. You, you say, what are you talking about, sparks? Well, somebody says to you at work, the boss is so demanding. Okay, you got two buckets. You can spill a little, little water on that comet, cold water, and put it out. Or you can spill, spill some kerosene on it. You're at school. Your friend says, yeah, the coach refuses to play me. Okay, so you're a friend. What, what do you say? Is it water or is it kerosene? Somebody says to you this next week, you know, the pastor ragged on all those women for dressing immodestly. <laughs> is he going to spill water or kerosene on that? See, I always find it humorous. Word always gets back to me when I say something that I know is particularly challenging, and then it gets talked about in community groups. I can't believe he said that. Someone says to you, Jason is so stuck on himself, or dad won't let me have the car, or any number of things. you got a choice. you got to spill a little bit of water or a little bit of kerosene. Are you a peace-loving person? That's the second relational builder. Third, considerate. The word considerate means courteous. It means respectful of others' feelings. It means kind. Considerate means kind. About a month and a half, two months ago, Sue and I hosted an open house for all the full-time or the paid staff members in children's ministry for our four campuses. So we had about 40 people there, paid children's workers, kids' world workers, and their spouses. And after the night was over and Sue and I were cleaning up the house and putting everything back together, we looked at each other and we said, was that the kindest group of people you've ever met or what? There, there's something about working with children, you know, in the ministry of children just seems to draw these people to it they're they're so kind they ask good questions they listen carefully they make you feel good you want to hug them when they leave your house Th this is what james is talking about here when he says consider it it's kind kind fourth relational builder submissive now if you look up the word submissive in a th thesaurus you're going to come across synonyms like this this is how our culture views Submissive, passive, compliant, docile, unassuming. In other words, a submissive person is a wallflower, right? Who wants to be that? Well, that's not the Bible word here. That's not what it means to be submissive according to Scripture is to be teachable. It's to be open to learning from others. It's to be not stubborn or defensive. Do you welcome other people's feedback? You a good listener? That's going to be one of my three, by the way. I'm circling that one. Sue and I had this little altercation the other day, and I was not very teachable, and I thought, dang it, i got to teach on this. So, Okay, so I hope you're noting your three so I'm not left alone having admitted one of mine. Fifth, relational builder. This is a combo full of mercy and good fruit. So, so this combination describes people who not only feel compassion toward those in need. They feel mercy. They actually do something about it to meet those needs. Let me warn you, one of the dangers of attending a church like Christ's community is we're big into meeting people's needs. And so we've got ministries to homeless people in shelters. We've got ministries to at-risk 
kids in public schools, ministries to unwed moms in crisis pregnancy centers, you know, ministries to the lonely elderly people in nursing homes. We had all these ministries, and you're going to hear about them periodically, frequently. You're going to hear stories of people who are meeting the needs of these folks, and the temptation will be to say, isn't it cool to be part of a church that does these kinds of things while you yourself are no part of any ministry of this sort? It's, it's so easy to draft, to experience vicariously draft behind what other people are doing. So let me say, James would say, it's not enough to feel compassion. It's not enough to say, oh, it's cool to be part of a church that's doing this kind of thing. You also got to be marked by good fruit yourself. You got to be rolling up your sleeves and getting involved. This is a good pitch for Super Second Saturday on June 8th, by the way. All right. Next, relational builder, impartial. I did an entire sermon on this three weeks ago. James 2, verses 1 to 13, the foolishness of favoritism. Remember that uh, sermon? By the way, anytime you miss, just go online and pick up what you missed. The foolishness of favoritism. James said in James 2 that when we look at people externally and we decide who we like and who we don't like based upon their skin color, what kind of car they drive, whether they've got the same political views that we have, root for the same sports teams we do, when we look at externals like that, we're, we're playing favorites. We're being partial, and that's wrong. We need to look at people on the inside, how God's wired them up to be. That's impartial. The last one, sincere. This is the opposite of the person who says one thing to your face and another, another thing behind your back. Okay, sincere is the person who's straightforward and who is genuine, who is lovingly honest. Most of us struggle with one side of that equation, lovingly honest. We're either all about love, and so we never say the hard thing that needs to be said, or we're, we're all about honesty, others know where we stand, but we're not very loving. Okay, loving honesty. So how, how did you do with these seven relational builders? Which three are you most in need of? Look at the list. In fact, the list is right up here. Once you say, uh, I think I know which three I need to work on, just raise your hand. Slip it up. Put it back down. Okay, God's word is a mirror. He brought you here today to cause you to look in the mirror of his word. So take a good look at yourself. Look at that list. Which three do you most need? Now, as I wrap things up today, I want to do a little experiment. So pay close attention. And as I'm doing this experiment, I'm going to ask the worship bands to come out on the stages of our four campus, campuses because when we close, we're going to sing a worship song that kind of pulls all of this together. And we'll collect our gifts and our offerings at the same time. But here's the experiment. I'm going to put two lists of questions on the screen. Okay? Two lists of three questions each. And I'm going to rifle through the questions and then ask you, which set of questions did you find easier to answer? All right, so here's the first list of questions. Can you name the five wealthiest people in the world? So you can either write this down real quickly on your outline, or you could just mentally do it. No cheating and sharing answers with others. Can you name the last five Heisman Trophy winners? If you don't know what a Heisman Trophy is, just forget the question, okay? <laughs> And lastly, can you name the last five Miss Americas? How are we doing so far? 
Okay, that's the first set of questions. Now, the experiment is not complete. Here's the second set of questions. Can you name a few people that have helped you through a difficult time? Who comes to your mind? Okay, can you name a few teachers or coaches or mentors who've impacted you, who've shaped your life? They've been people of influence. Third question, can you name a few friends that you enjoy spending time with? Okay, you don't have to list all these out. Here's the experiment. I want to ask, how many of you found the second set of questions much easier to answer than the first set? Okay, every one of us. Why? Why? Because our cue is important. Relational quotient is significant. When I ask you the first set of questions, the people who came to mind, if anybody came to mind, are people who are impressive. But when I ask you the second set of questions, what came to mind are people who are relational. So what are you aiming to be? Impressive or relational? Okay, relational comes from God. Relational is a byproduct of the wisdom that only God can give. <laughs> 